I do have to begin my talk just with a sort of obligatory as someone who's worked for the U.S. government. All comments today represent my own, not official U.S. policy. And again, I, I really appreciate being here. Hey there, Slavic Connection listeners. The episode you're about to hear was recorded in front of a live audience and is a part of our expert speaker series presented by Hashtag Connections. Our guest was Dr. Michael Dennis, an authority on the Chechen Republic here at UT Austin who lived and worked among the people of Chechnya. Today's discussion about the Chechen's never-ending struggle for independence was moderated by our very own Nicholas Pierce and co-sponsored by the Strauss Center for International Security and Law and the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies and the William P. Clemens Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you to everyone for coming to the the second talk in our uh, Connections Experts uh, speaker series. Dr. Michael Dennis is currently an adjunct assistant professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and a leading expert on Chechnya, the North Caucasus insurgency, and the Russo-Chechen Wars. In addition to over 20 years of research in the region, Dr. Dennis spent over five years living with the Chechen rebels and refugees in the Pankisi Gorge along the Chechen border with the Republic of Georgia and displaced Chechen communities in Azerbaijan, Belgium, Poland, and Turkey, exploring the conditions under which displaced populations attitudinally support political violence. He holds a PhD in government from the University of Texas in Austin and studied at Novgorod State University in Russia and the University of Cambridge in the UK. He's a former Fulbright scholar and speaks Chechen and Russian. Dr. Dennis? Thank you very much. And also left uh, omitted from that biography was also a uh, dual major with Crease. Uh, I have my undergrad also here at the University of Texas. So it's wonderful to be here today. Thank you for having me. I'd also just like to thank the Center for Russian East European Eurasian Studies, the Strauss Center for International Security and Law, the LBJ School, the College of Liberal Arts, the Global Disinformation Lab, and the Department of International Relations and Global Studies. So thank you for hosting me. What I wanted to do is sort of to begin by just sort of sharing an introduction of, of Chechnya. You know, why should we care about Chechnya? It's in the news today, but it hasn't always been. And so I sort of want to introduce the, the context of that and the conflict. And I'd and I like to start with sort of a quote from my research. And this was with a former uh, rebel commander. It was taken in Pankisi Gorge in Duisi village. And it just, I think it's a nice way to sort of begin the conversation. So Chechens are not people who think of their stomachs in their pockets. And this is sort of a Chechen proverb that means you don't just think about your immediate needs or your material needs, right? So these, we're not a people who think of our stomachs in our pockets. This is a long fight. I like the movie Braveheart. Why did William Wallace fight? He fought against injustice. And when he began, the people treated him badly, but he was silent. And when they killed his wife, he was a terrorist. This is Chechnya. Chechnya is small. Every family has lost so much. Every single one. We have lost so much. I have lost so much. And we were silent. I had this dream when I was a child that I used to see the packs of dogs running around the city. And I dreamed that I would one day find an island somewhere where I would take them and feed them. I would take care of them. And now the roles are changed. Now I wish I could do that for my people. But there is no island. There is nowhere that is safe. And this is why I fought. And this is why I will fight again. The Russians began this war, but we will end it. We must end it. There is no choice. There is only one William Wallace, but in Chechnya, we have many, many William Wallaces. Wallace fought and died for his freedom and independence. Chechens have died for their freedom and independence, too. In the future, Chechnya will be free. 
So let me also just say inside, I've seen Braveheart now more than any other movie uh, <laughs> and watching it with the Chechens. But let's talk about Chechnya. So Chechnya, a small landlocked mountainous republic, about 5,000 square miles, uh, roughly the size of Connecticut, located between the Black and Caspian Seas along the northern edge of the North Caucasus Mountains. And for folks who have been there, I mean, these are really majestic, you know, the highest peaks in Europe, very, very rugged terrain. And, you know, going back to the 1700s, when the, um, when the Russians under Catherine the Great start to make their incursions south, looking for warm water ports on the Black Sea, they run up against the Chechens. And what you have is sort of this immediate sort of, you know, contestation. And it becomes sort of baked into the psyches, into the cultures of both people. You know, as the wars sort of evolve, you start to see, you know, from the Russian side, people like Pushkin and Lermontov and Tolstoy, right, who served as young cavalry and artillery officers, you know, writing about the Chechens, writing about this conflict. And from the Chechen side, you see it as well. And I think, again, I, I want to just say this in the beginning, because I, I think it really helps explain some of the story. Folks have, you know, heard or, or read Solzhenitsyn and what he said about the Chechens, you know, in Gulag Archipelago, right? The one nation that wouldn't bow. Tolstoy and Haji Murat talking about, you know, how the Chechens load the Russians for their senseless cruelty. But the Chechens as well, over time, have developed this. And, and again, I'll read you just a, a quick quote. From a, from a Chechen woman. Every Chechen man is programmed to be a warrior. We have a tradition. When a baby turns one, we give him a knife and a piece of bread. If the baby grabs the knife, he is a warrior, and we will raise him as such. Every Chechen mother raises her son to be a fighter, a warrior, a brave man. And here's one of our lullabies. You are the son of your father, a father who was killed by a Russian. And by singing you this song, I am teaching you to avenge your father. And if you don't avenge your father, the same bullet that killed him should kill you. If that happens, I will be a very happy and proud mother by showing you the right path, by teaching you our way. And I'm putting around your neck a pendant, which is the bullet that killed your father. And again, I just want to sort of kind of begin the talk in that way so that we can understand some of these later dynamics when it comes to what we see in Syria, what we see in Ukraine, right? Understanding this sort of context. Going back to sort of the history, it has not always been confrontational. I know the Chechens, a lot of them will say, you know, it's been 400 years of war and struggle, but of course there has been peaceful cohabitation, coexistence as well. But, you know, after the 1800s and you have this, you know, this, the great, the Murid Wars, you know, the great Caucasian Wars, however you'd like to describe them, you start to have this sort of coexistence, but you also have persistence rebellion. And this happens throughout the 19th and the 20th centuries. Now, Moving into the 20th century, one of the real sort of seminal moments for the Chechens occurred in 1944, February 23rd. And this was the, the deportations. And, and folks, some folks may have heard of these. But essentially, the, the, the premise was that, you know, Stalin and the Russians were very, the Soviets were very afraid of the encroaching German armies and that the Chechens, given this history, would link up with the Germans and that this would be a real problem, right? The Germans are trying to move south to get to the oil fields in the Caucasus. And so one night they launched this operation and they round up, you know, scores of people, deport essentially the entire population. Those who were too sick or too elderly to move were, were executed, burned in barns. The journey itself, right, on these train cars sort of deported to the frozen steppes of Kazakhstan, scores are killed. And to this day, you know, when I was living with the Chechens, certain communities would 
would have a day of remembrance. And in certain families, if you had a child who was born on that day, they did not celebrate a birthday because they were seen as having a living reminder. And this becomes important, too, because they stayed in, in sort of exile until the 60s. Uh, Khrushchev, the sort of de-Stalinization, the thaw, they allow them back to go to their homes. Of course, they come to their homes um, and they find that their homes are now occupied by Russians and other ethnicities and they are sort of marginalized. But as we move forward to the 90s, right, those young children who came back home, now they're adults. And as the Soviet Union starts to fall apart, as all of the 15, you know, republics start to declare their independence, so does Chechnya. And at the time, a Air Force general, a flamboyant, you know, man named Jokar Dudayev, he was the, the only Chechen general. He was in the Air Force. He commanded um, uh, strategic bombers. But he came home, he gave a talk, and suddenly he was elected the leader, and Chechnya declares their independence. Now, from 1991 to 1993, you know, domestic political squabbles in Russia and Moscow sort of keep Chechnya on the back burner. But at a certain point, they realize that Chechnya is kind of out of control, right, for them and for, the, for Moscow. And so they decide, and, and this, you know, this has sort of been documented. It sounds sort of fantastical, but at, a, at sort of a birthday party, copious amounts of, of vodka, they make the decision with the, the Minister of Defense and they say, we're going to, you know, sort of this launch this small war abroad to raise popularity, to solidify the regime, something that they did in 1905. And so they launched this war. And in doing so, essentially, the Russians launch this war and, and they use conscripts. They don't have maps. Their radios don't work. It's, it's very much like what you see in parts of contemporary Ukraine with the invasion. And the Chechens were ready. And the amount of destruction, the amount of loss of life on both sides was terrific. Essentially, though, Russia is large. Chechnya is small, right? It's actually, I didn't say this earlier, but it, it is the largest sort of ethnic group in the North Caucasus at a million point five people. But it, that's, you know, that's minuscule compared to, to Russia and the military resources that Russia can bring to bear. And so the Chechens are putting up this sort of this fight and, and they're sort of slowly being driven back. And, and the other thing to note about Chechnya is or sort of looks like a hand is in the north, it's sort of as flat plains. But in the, in the south is where you start to get into these mountains. And so what happens is right as sort of it seems like maybe the Chechens, the Chechen resistance fighting for national independence, right as it seems like they are going to sort of lose one of the warlords named Shamil Basayev. He launches this daring raid into uh, into Russia uh, at a town called Budnyovsk, and he seizes a hospital, and he takes these hostages. And the Russians try this hostage rescue, and it goes very badly. And this becomes the instigation for peace talks. And so, at the same, and shortly thereafter, too, the Chechens launched a counteroffensive and actually took back a lot of Grozny. And so, those two events lead the Russians to come to the negotiating table, and they agree the Hasavyurt Accords to sort of give Chechnya de facto independence for five years and to revisit it. Well, what happens during that time is that Chechnya never had a history of sort of princes or kings or hierarchical governance, right? Sort of radical egalitarianism, they call it. It's clan dynamics. And these clans start to fight and the warlords start to fight, right? Because they've got their own little sort of resources. They've got their own fiefdoms carved out. And it is very difficult when an elected in the only free, fair, you know, uh, internationally sort of approved election, Aslam Muskadov comes to power in 1997. He's a moderate. He's also a former Soviet uh, colonel in the artillery, but he's unable to sort of bring these factions together. And he's very afraid of a civil war. And so he makes all these sort of accommodations. As all of that is happening, there's all sorts of crime and kidnapping. And, and so Chechnya becomes this essentially this lawless place. 
Well, the big difference is that Vladimir Putin comes to power, right? And he is sort of the antithesis of Yeltsin, right? He's he's sober, he's serious, he's, you know, he's still wearing his shirt at this time, but he's he's this guy who's going to come and he's going to restore Russian greatness. And so he prosecutes a new war. And this war is very different. This time, they realized that one of the things that, that really hurt the Russian side was that they did not control the narrative. They didn't control the messaging. And so you had, you know, Russian officers or Russian politicians would say in the first war, you know, oh, nothing happened today. And then a free independent media as well at the time would sort of juxtapose that with, well, actually in Grozny today, here were, you know, Russian sorties and, and bombs and stuff like that. And so the Russians learned to control the media. They learned to sanitize the language because domestic opposition to the first Russo-Chechen war was very, very strong. So the Russian army is not, right? The Russian army is working that day. They're conducting these zachiskis, right? These cleaning operations, which are really, really brutal affairs, surround the village, round up all the men from 12 to 70. They put them into filtration camps. And, and in these filtration camps, I mean, the most horrific torture that you can imagine. And I detail this in my book, um, but it's but it's really, really just the worst things that, that you could sort of consider. So they control the message. They control the populations. They attack the republic, not in three sort of pincer movements like the first time. They sort of attack it all at once. And the Chechens this time, the resistance, you know, I think they'll tell you they, they kind of got it wrong. They thought that they would be able to sort of replicate what worked for them during the first war, but it didn't. And so very famously, a lot of them were surrounded in Grozny. And this, I've heard different stories about how true this is or not, supposedly, and, and corruption, of course, is, is endemic for, through both wars, right? A lot of the weapons that the Chechens get are sold by the Russian soldiers themselves. Supposedly, some of the Chechen resistance, they make a deal with the Russians. Hey, there's actually an escape route out of Grozny. And so this is some of really the top commanders from the resistance. Well, what happened was there wasn't really a corridor out. It was a minefield and it was an ambush by some Russian paratroopers. And, you know, again, I have met several people who were there that night and it's just tremendous what they went through. I mean, some of them just volunteered to run straight ahead and to clear a path. Shamil Basayev, who I mentioned earlier, lost his leg. But that's a part of the story, right? How the Russians prosecute this war. And another third part of how they sort of do it differently is this idea about Chechenization. Because of the fractious nature of Chechen society, because of what we'll talk about later, the sort of the growing role of a different strand of Islam. Chechen, Chechens were predominantly Sufi, but this sort of strand of Salafism or Wahhabism from, from outside. There's a, a certain faction, right? The Benoit clan, particularly with Ahmed Kadyrov, who was a rebel, uh, rebel who was the head religious leader for the resistance. He switches sides and, and that has all sort of cascading effects. The last thing to say about about what the Russians were able to do was this idea about collective punishment as well. Realizing if you can't get the rebels, then you can target their families. And so all of this has this effect. And at the same time, just talking about what the U.S. did in the first Russo-Chechen war, the United States made the deal that it was far more dangerous to let Russia go down a perilous path if Yeltsin were to fall. And so Bill Clinton very famously compared Yeltsin to Abraham Lincoln trying to keep his, his country together. Well, fast forward to the second Russo-Chechen war, and after 9-11, the first foreign leader to call President Bush was Vladimir Putin. And Bush had run on a campaign, people forget this, actually talking about, hey, Putin, you need to adhere to, to human rights abuses in Chechnya. Well, now the game has changed. And even in the U.S. press then, what we see is that Chechens who were freedom fighters are now terrorists. 
And again, as an aside, I, my, my book is full of quotes with Chechens just really abhorring that. Stop calling us terrorists. Now, from the rebel side, again, they are they are sort of on their heels. They're running, you know, they're sort of running back to their mountain bases. They're trying to sort of, you know, trying to adjust to what's happened and they're not ready. And so what happens is they devise their own sort of adaptive strategies. And what these are essentially are spread the conflict. This is something that they've done, you know, in the, as we said, right, in the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s, they spread the conflict to the, to the surrounding republics. They start to target civilians, something that becomes extremely sort of controversial among the rebels. You actually see a split over targeting civilians, suicide bombings, taking the war to Moscow proper, attacks on the school in Beslan, attack on the, on the theater in Dubrovka in Moscow. And then you start to see these new political objectives. And I know we'll touch upon this a little later, but the idea was no longer was it a fight for Chechen independence. It was a fight for an Islamic caliphate in the region, right? An Emirate Kavkaz, a Caucasus Emirate. And later that would even morph into the Islamic state. And but again, just sort of talking about how the insurgency evolved is an important part of the story. The last thing I'll say on this is over time, as the conflict spreads throughout the North Caucasus, it starts to attract more people. The euphemism becomes no longer did my son go to the mountains, it's you go to the forest, right? Almost implying sort of in a, in a geographic sense, right, the spread of the conflict. No longer was it young rural males. It was doctors, lawyers, engineers, the sons of political elites. Their Olympic athletes are all joining the insurgency. The ranks swell. Violence swells across, across the region, particularly in places like Dagestan. And what you see, though, is that at, as, the, as the ranks of the insurgents swell, the Russians start to take advantage of that by infiltrating these groups. And that, to me, was one of the most consequential things that they did. They infiltrated these groups with, with spies and informers. Those informers were able to sort of, you know, to tell the, the Russians where they were. Of course, having a bunch of formal rebels under Kadyrov fighting also, right? They know the tactics. They know the hideouts. And so that really starts to degrade the Chechen resistance. The same thing happens in the buildup to the Sochi Olympics when you start to see a, a real upsurge in Russian security actions. And then you have the war in Syria which Syria becomes the easy jihad, but it also becomes a way to fight. So, so you, you mentioned this, this trend in the second Russo-Chechen war that you've described it before the first Russo-Chechen war that kind of the Chechens win the war, but they lose the peace. And then as you described, you see the Putin regime use the kind of natural fractiousness, the, the, you know, characterized by the landscape of Chechnya, these, these ravines, mm -hmm. these valleys and the, the existing clan politics. And you see how they use that, but also the language of national security and securitization, mm -hmm. the check, the border checkpoints, mm -hmm. the, the cleansing stations, the, the infiltration kind of implying a turn to counter insurgency. So do you think that, that that securitization kind of characterizes the, the kind of Russian treatment of Chechnya and this, even after the second Russo-Chechen war, because they kind of turn Chechnya itself into a kind of prison? Yeah, I think that's a, that is a fair description. And, and, you know, within that, it's very interesting because 
Right. In the U.S. context, in the Western context, if you talk about counterinsurgency, you talk about it in terms of population-centric, right? So protect the population so that they feel secure enough to give you information on the insurgents. And then you, you, you engender that by providing security, providing sort of services and material goods. The Russians did engage in a form of counterinsurgency mixed with sort of counterterrorism. Their counterinsurgency, which is called enemy-centric or, or sort of uh, autocratic, and that is essentially, again, this idea of directly targeting the population, right? So the population still plays a central role, but it now is the target to be attacked because if you can't, can't get the rebels, this is the best way. And, you know, there is, there's a lot of very interesting work, my own and, and a few others, on this idea about what caused some of these defections. And, and, and it was Russian tactics. And what they tried to do in sort of these approaches, what's interesting additionally, is that this is what they tried to do beyond Chechnya. So they tried to do it in Dagestan, right? Get local, get local elites who are loyal to you, you know, build up the security forces, directly target the population. And that has sort of been their, their, their MO there. Yeah. And, and thinking back to kind of counterinsurgencies in Afghanistan, and you brought up that, that wonderful kind of chilling lullaby. Was there a sense in, in the second Russo-Chechen war that the new generation of Chechen fighters that you see, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll move right, right into mm-hmm. kind of Syria and Ukraine and the expanded yeah. conflict, mm-hmm. expanded struggle. Is it kind of the, the you kill one, what they would, what the Russian regime would call terrorist, and you've now created three with, with all of his sons and, and cousins and things that, that kind of you, you have this domino effect of you've now, because as you described, there was a turn from the rural disempowered, mm-hmm. disenfranchised youth to then you saw doctors and engineers and to touch upon a, a contemporary thing, a very common thing that's said about Gaza is kind of, you know, the, the loss of a father figure mm-hmm. or, a, or a cousin or an uncle is a driving force to, to a turn to political violence. Yeah. And, and let me use this to sort of kind of tee up some, some of the other things that we're going to talk about. So the, ro- the role of reciprocal violence in Chechen culture. Now, right, I, I totally accept and appreciate, right, cultures are constructs and, and right, we have to be very cognizant of, of avoiding sweeping generalizations. But there is a significant portion of the Chechen population that perceives that they have this sort of, right, and they have in the past, but this culture of reciprocal violence. And what this has traditionally been is, you know, directed against the perpetrator who has attacked you and things like that. It's, it plays a very interesting role right now. One of the ways that it's playing an interesting role is that, you know, if you think about, right, this, you know, the sort of, right, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that's just not about reciprocity. It's about proportionality. No more than an eye for an eye, no more than a tooth for a tooth. Well, in speaking with Chechen rebels, what has happened to this, to this sort of understanding, to this sort of the impacts, the unintended consequences of, of using these types of techniques in this environment is that one, the Chechens, they don't know who was in that plane that dropped a bomb on their village, right? And, and, a, and strict adherence to this blood code meant, you know, you got to get that one person, but they can't. And so there has been a transferability now, right? If you can't get that person, then any other Russian will do. And for some of the rebels that I spoke with, it doesn't even have to be a serviceman, right? The Russian people, they support, the, um, they support these soldiers, and so they are a legitimate target. So that's one part of it. The other part is about proportionality. And I'll just say there was one Chechen rebel that I, leader I met. His name was the Tiger. He had lost his entire family. He was, he was killed after I met him. I met him in Pankisi. But, but he said, you know, I will kill as many Russians as I can 
right? Because they killed my family. Now, the other thing about this, this blood feud, it was, it was never meant to sort of apply to outsiders, right? It was meant when you don't have an overarching government, I mean, right, think back to your Hobbes and stuff like that. When you don't have an overarching government, what keeps the peace? What keeps the equilibrium? It's this fear of blood feud. And it's one of the things that Muscatoff was so concerned about. It's why when sort of people like Basayev and others are sort of starting to, right, sort of challenge him, starting to align with sort of exogenous or, or external foreign uh, Islamic groups, it, it, he's so concerned about unleashing this blood feud, but this is part of the story. The other part of the story that's very interesting and will come up later is that Kadyrov has weaponized this in a way that is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible, it's brutal, it's evil, but it's effective. And if we talk about post-Kadyrov, this is a central challenge for who succeeds him. But I kind of watched this happen in real time, and I, was, I wasn't really sure what I was seeing, but I was meeting with a bunch of people who were former rebels who had been captured by the, by the Kadyrov forces. And what they said was after being tortured, after their friends and, and uh, compatriots were, were summarily executed, they were sort of mock executions, again, all these sort of horrific things. They were given a choice. You can be out, you know, take out back and shoot you right now, or you could join us. And so what they would do is they would sometimes give them weapons. They'd drive them up into the mountains and say, you know, start walking east. And if you come across the rebels, you know, shoot them. And and the other part of what they would do then is as these men were sort of making their way back to the to the base and, you know, and I would ask them, like, why don't you just run away? And it was like this idea of like, well, they'll kill our families right off. As they were making their way back, other folks in the Kadyrovs would go to these villages and say, you know, so say you say you were one of these gentlemen, right? You're, you're a rebel fighter and I'm Kadyrov and I capture you and I torture you and then I, I send you out. Well, as you're out there walking the woods, what I do is I go to the village where you used to operate. And I say, you know, Nicholas has been very helpful in the operation to kill some of these rebels. He's helping us right now. So just you'd better watch out. That whisper campaign, what that does is it locks you in. Now, because you've you sort of activated this blood feud against you, you need me for protection. Now, the same thing has worked in, in, in across Chechen society for Kadyrov. And, and here it's about, it's about patronage. It's about access to resources, access to jobs. He's the only game in town. And so you then have to, right, bind yourself to him for security, whether that's physical security or just the idea about livelihoods. Maybe this is the idea that there's kind of two Chechnyas, that there's the Kadyrov. I mean, I think you could absolutely characterize it as kind of a mafia mm. state that's, you know, centered in Chechnya and Grozny that's kind of been reconstructed with oil money. But then there's this second Chechnya that exists outside. And I think we mentioned it a little earlier, the turn to uh, a larger struggle. And I, I know that you've had some experience talking to communities outside of Chechnya. Let's let's talk a little bit about first Syria, which obviously starts about five years after the uh, the official end of the second Russo-Chechen mm -hmm. war. And then obviously Ukraine, which starts around the same time. What's the generational struggle that's being fought here? Yeah. So so this is this is a really fascinating period within the context of sort of the second Russo-Chechen war. And, you know, on the on the books, right, it goes from 1999 to, to 2009, but it, it extends much further. It really extends up to about 2014 in the Sochi Olympics, even though there are remnants after. 
But one of the things when I described sort of the differences between the first and the second Russo-Chechen wars, one of the other consequences of the of how Putin prosecuted the war, how Kadyrov in this in this kin targeting was you had really unprecedented refugee flows. And these Chechens, you know, fled in multiple directions. Some went through the mountains to Georgia, ending up in the Pankisi Gorge, where there were sort of co-ethnics called Kists. These were Chechens who had come across a couple hundred years ago, intermarried with Georgians. Some went through Dagestan to Azerbaijan. Others went through the smuggling routes to get to Europe. And in doing so, right, with them traveled the politics, with them traveled a lot of the fighters who were wounded and who were being targeted. And, and that was one of the interesting things, too. I tried to collect demographic data. and Part of it is a bias because, you know, Chechnya is a patriarchal society. And so a lot of my contacts were, were men. But overall, there, there was a, there was this, there was confirmation that a lot of the refugees actually were young men. And so anyway, for those people that wanted to continue the struggle, when they got better, it was very difficult for them to get back home. If you, again, these mountains, if folks have been there, you know, the routes to get from Georgia, they're seasonal. It's difficult to get across. You can do it in ones and twos. Very famously, the group that I was with, Hamzat Goliath, the, the Black Angel, he was killed trying to cross over these mountains because of all the border patrols in the area. So it's difficult to get back. There are smuggling routes through Ukraine back then, I'm sure still today, you know, but those are ones and twos. So it was very difficult to get back home. And then when you got back home, again, another consequence was these the Chechen people, the population supporting the rebels, I guess back to the counterinsurgency quickly. I mean, they provided them with everything, but the, it became uh, it became almost untenable for them to do that. So it was very difficult for them to survive. And so what happens is you see this sort of first generation of Chechen fighters when Syria comes. This is a chance to fight back against Russia. And so this is, you know, again, I, I'll avoid some of the names and things like that. But these are folks who were sort of in their later 20s, 30s and 40s, veterans of the Second Russo-Chechen War who see a chance to go back and fight. Now, if you want, I can talk more about uh, motivations. Uh, someone that I knew very well, a, a guy named Wacha Bugayev. He was one of Goliath's top guys. He had been wounded. He was later killed in Syria. But right before that, he, you know, he's this guy who's this Chechen rebel and he's living in this sort of beautiful bucolic valley. He's married. He's got three kids, but he was bored out of his mind. And so Syria becomes not just a chance to sort of fight back against Russia. It, it's a sense of adventure, right? It, it's a chance to make money. It's a chance to do all of these different things. And at the same time in Ukraine, you see other Chechens, again, predominantly veterans of the, from the second Russo-Chechen war going and forming these battalions, the Jokar, Jokar Dudaya battalion, Sheikh Mansour, one of the original leaders of the Chechen resistance in the 1700s, right? They form these pro-Kiev battalions and they're fighting in Ukraine early on, right? In the East. But then you see, as you said, this generational thing. Well, what happens is the younger generation, right? These kids who grew up in the wars, who are absolutely like lionizing their older brothers and their fathers. Well, they see this as their chance, and again, uh, one story, Hamza Kalayev, I mentioned, his son, Rustam, who I knew as sort of a, you know, a, an awkward teenager, he had big shoes. And, and I've got quotes where, where the, the people say this, like, I, they felt bad for Rustam to live up to such a famous father. I have no doubt that that's one of the reasons that he went to Syria and was one of the first Chechens who was killed. Anyway, the second generation, they want to fight. But here's what happens. While that first generation goes, they start to form their own groups, right? Ajnad al-Qaz. They're unaligned. They're not aligned with like al-Nusra Front, which, you know, I know it's had like a dozen names, but they're not aligned <laughs> with any type of al-Qaeda group. 
they're definitely not aligned with the Islamic State group. And again, I have just, you know, just tons of interview data where the Chechens are like, ISIS, that's not us. That's not us. Look at these other guys who are fighting for these non-allied groups, right? Look, they fly our flag the highest. He does it with a wink, right? He's giving us a clue that he's Mm -hmm. fighting for the real cause. Well, the younger generation, they do, right? They are more religious and and in and in a in a way that is less traditional. And this is again, this sort of confessional sectarian dynamic is plays out across the Chechen community. But these are the folks who start to fight fight for ISIS. And and just as a quick aside on, on that too, you know, within the diaspora, these Chechens they go to all these different places. And my own research, I was interested in understanding under what conditions do displaced people support militant violence. We know that there's a relationship, right, between refugee camps. Those are particular mechanisms between diasporas. Having done this for 20 years, I was there for, you know, observing firsthand the evolution of the Chechen refugee community into the Chechen diaspora. And every place that I went to see if there was variance, right, and whether they supported violence, every place was different. The the grievances they faced were, uh, were different, right? Security here, economic problems there. The, the living conditions were different, right? The political objectives that they wanted were different. Their views on violence were different. And it's a very interesting story. Again, these are the people that came from the same place and left at the same time for the same reason. They go to different areas and maybe there's a selection effect, but, but not one that's, that's particularly robust, meaning like you and I are both pro Emirate Kavkaz. And so we decide to go to Belgium together. But all of this variance happens. And, and so there's all this tension then. All of the political struggles that happen come over to the diaspora. And so what I was reminded of is this one interview I had with, with a woman and her son was there. He insisted. Her son was a self-professed Wahhabist. And he insisted on being in the interview. And in the interview, the, this woman, she kept talking about how great Kadyrov was. Like, look, he's rebuilt Grozny. Look, everybody gets a car. And this kid is like, what, mom? He's a brutal murderer. He's killing all these people. And, and she just keeps going and going. And finally, he gets so upset, he leaves the room. And then she leans over and winks. She's like, I like to give him a hard time. <laughs> he's a Wahhabist. <laughs> right? and, but, but, but again, there's an entire story about these dynamics at play in the diaspora. And, and when it comes to sort of you know, again, the the politics of it and the role of Kadyrov, you know, I'll say one other thing about the Chechens. And, and again, this ties in, you know, when we think about political objectives, we think about them in a continuum, right? And so if we apply that to the Chechen case, we can say, what should Chechnya be if you ask, if you ask them? Chechnya should be a part of Russia. It should be independent. You would think it should be part of a Caucasus emirate or it should be part of the Islamic state, right? This global caliphate. Those seem to be on a continuum from maybe, if we think about it, maybe more moderate to more maximal goals. But here's the thing, 92% of the people in my work, when they talked about those maximal goals, right, when they talked about an Emirate Kafkaz, that was not the ends. That's not what, that wasn't what they were fighting for. That was the means through which they achieve what they really want, which is independence. And that is the same thing for some of the folks that supported the Islamic State, right? Because what they'll say very explicitly, Chechnya, we're too small, we're too isolated, we can't do it on our own. We need to join together with our fellow brothers in the North Caucasus, something they've done in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, 20th century. And, and so that is a very important part of the story there. The other thing I can, I can sort of talk to is this, this idea about two Chechnyas. Hmm. What other folks will sort of point out, it's very interesting. You know, Kadyrov is one of Putin's most loyal, you know, uh, sort His of- His TikTok videos attest to it. He, yes, he loves it. He loves sending TikToks to- That's right, that's right. And, and, and part of it is because Kadyrov knows that his entire future is tied to Putin. 
And, and you know, there's a, there's a great quote. Um, a friend of mine uh, who used to work for Memorial, she did an interview with Kadyrov, and she talked about in the early days how he knows, you know, the, the insecurities. And he would say, like, the only person I can talk to is my dog. And his dog died. And he said, it's because I filled him with so much grief. So Kadyrov knows he's in a very precarious position. But if you look at Chechnya today, it has, you know, essentially a private army with the most advanced, you know, special forces and equipment and all these types of things. They are absolutely outside of the Russian constitutional law framework. I mean, if you were to say, like, what does Chechen independence look like or could look like if you took a picture of Chechnya, it's like, how is that not it? And in doing so, there is this contestation, as you said, for the two Chechnyas. Just this week, they announced, so some of the Kadyrov forces, right, the, the, the sort of the, the militias that became formalized in the Russian National Guard, they announced the formation of two new battalions, one of which is the Sheikh Mansur, right? So, <laughs> so they are playing this, right? He very much realizes it, and it's, and it's a great messaging piece. Why do you want to go fight for the rebels? Look, we have Sharia right here, right? We have independence. We have all these things. <laughs> So that's a part of it. The last thing I'll, I'll sort of say here is about the diaspora. You know, when you look at sort of their views on violence, it's a very complex story. You know, the, I, I didn't pose when I asked about this, I didn't pose sort of like, you know, hypotheticals. I, I asked about a few concrete attacks and, and use those as sort of touchstones to try to um, sort of understand um, different types of support. But what you see in the motivations, right, a lot of it was sort of very strategic, very instrumental. Like the people who were against it were like, it doesn't work. It's going to invite more violence against us. It gives us a bad reputation. The people who supported it did so, one, because they felt like they had no choice, right? Russia's big. They have planes and tanks and we have nothing. You know, this idea about revenge is, is another part of the story. But the other side of it is like something that occurred to me not too long ago was like, you know, when we think about war and peace, we think about not, not Tolstoy's book, but just the general conditions of war and peace. Although maybe the book too, why not? <laughs> but when we think about that, right, we, we treat it as a dyad. We treat it as sort of, right, like dichotomous. You're either here or you're there. But when it comes to the Chechen population, one of the reasons I'm calling this book, this book manuscript is War Unending, because for, the, um, for many of the Chechens, you know, they're no longer subject to, you know, planes dropping bombs on them and Russian artillery shells, but they are still subject to insecurity, right? Kadyrov has spies in the diaspora. When I was there, there were extraordinary renditions, um, two very famous cases. It was just, it was horrifying to sort of be a part of that. The family scrambling, you know, where, where was this one individual? They couldn't find him. Come to find out, they later found him, you know, killed on the side of the road in, che in Chechnya, right? It was obvious signs of torture. And so there's this constant sort of insecurity, right? And, and Kadyrov is sort of, is engendering that. All of the assassinations, right, that, that take place in the diaspora. On top of all of the sort of the other types of material sort of insecurity, do you have enough food? Can you pay for your, you know, your apartment or things like that? And then this existential threat. And that's where it also comes in, right? Again, you see it in Pankisi, the Council of the Elders, the Women's Council, the Sufi Mosque being sort of challenged by you know, these more elaborate mosques in Duisi and Omalo and Jokolo now would have external funding and which attract the younger generation. It's this existential threat. And that too is important to understand what is happening in Syria and what is happening in Ukraine. Again, countless, countless narratives in my work about how this is just preparing for the long fight. Our fight is against Russia. 
our fight has to be against them or we have to fight for freedom. We have to fight for independence. And I think that's why you, you can see some of these groups uh, fighting and, and and sort of even messaging the, the way that they that they message. just touch a little bit on we know we know kind of over the long history of, of diaspora and displacement particularly in the tw- late 20th and 21st centuries that the the conditions that particularly uh, religious and ethnic minorities face mm-hmm. even in western europe after the migrant crisis that these are kind of places that breed a certain kind of of resentment and breed a certain kind of disenfranchisement that makes like Wahhabism quite attractive. And when you put that in tandem with this this uh, Chechen cultural affinity for for kind of a lionization mm-hmm. of of sacrifice and, and martyrdom, in your experience dealing with these diaspora communities, uh, did you find that that kind of the more economically precarious that that was uh, the people who were who were the younger generation was most willing to turn towards a new yeah, no, you know, not not specifically. And I think, you know, that idea, I mean, we've we've we have learned so much in the last 20 years about, you know, quote unquote radicalization and how it works and things like that. And, you know, with respect to how that played out in the North Caucasus in Chechnya, a lot of times like in the Western context, we, we sort of think about this sort of sequencing, like something happens, ready, you're, you know, you're impoverished, you, you know, there's some trigger point, and then you go off and you, you know, you become cognitively radicalized, and then you join a group, right? In the caucuses, that's not how actually it worked, right? For a lot of these folks, maybe there was no opportunity, right? Because you didn't, you weren't on the Kadyrov patronage, patronage sort of network. And so, the, the insurgency, if it wins, right, that's a whole new social order, right? Maybe you've got a chance for upward mobility. That's one way. The other way is with these abuses, right? One of the things when I, when I talked about the expanding sort of um, profile demographics of rebel recruitment, you know, another thing is the rebels were very savvy and they realized like, oh, you know, you were beaten up by the police. If you're beaten up by the police, where do you go for justice? You don't go to the police. Mm. The rebels were like, come to us. We will help you get revenge. And of course, you know, maybe they put you on the video and say, here's, you know, here's Nicholas, our new recruit. Thank you for joining us. We're all wearing masks. Nicholas is not. Um, and that's so a now, good incentive to, <laughs> to stay with the rebel group. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's right. Thanks for coming up to the mountains. But what happens is as, as you sort of spend every day with us, you start to, oh, okay, this is, this is kind of what, what's happening. And, and, and so I don't really see that driver. I, what I really see is again, the story, and it's a little bit different, right? It's a little bit different in every single place, so it's contextual. But for the most part, you know, again, that first generation, I really think it is, this is their chance, um, you know, to get back home. Just even a quick aside on this, you know, a lot of times too, when it, you mentioned some of the, the, the prevailing wisdoms about recruitment and things like that, you know, also one of the prevailing wisdoms is that young men are more, right? And there's all sorts of, you know, data to sort of support this, but young men are particularly, if you did a survey, right, the young men would be more likely to support violence. The other thing in my data shows that men 55 to 65 were the second highest group to support violence. As I get older, I understand that, right? You're a little grumpy, but you know, but it's really about too. These people have been through, right? These are the generation that grew up in, in the deportations. These are the people that lived through the two wars. And now they realized, you know, 
it is very unlikely that they're going to see their dreams. And so violence is the only way. But but um, but I don't really see that part of it. You know, the economic story, I see it about wanting to fight back against Russia. I see it as young men looking for adventure and 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 in some in some instances looking, you know, again, this was a big story in Pankisi with the Kists, right? The Chechens who had intermarried with Georgians. Um, some of them, you know, became very prominent in the Islamic State. Tarkan Batriashvili, Omar al-Shashani was his nom de guerre. Um, among the Chechen respondents, they would say, those are Georgians, those aren't, those aren't real Chechens, mm-hmm. right? They were kind of like, there was this inferiority complex. But but anyway, uh, some of those kists that joined also joined. Again, I've got some great quotes in here. I, I won't share them now. Um, but but they also went because, you know, they wanted adventure. They they wanted, you know, a car and a swimming pool with these sort of TikTok videos. But but in several instances, um, a, a woman in Pankisi told me, she said, you know, there was one boy who went because he really wanted to marry this girl. And this girl said, if you go become a fighter in Syria, if you come back, I'll marry you. She wanted no part of this kid. She just wanted to get rid of him. And he went. Um, and so, you know, again, the sort of the banality of, of motivations and violence, it's, it's a very interesting story as well. Yeah, it's easy to get caught up in, in talking about ideology and religion and all these big things. But, you know, there's 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 a more mundane aspect. And, That's right. and maybe to turn towards, I mean, you've done so much work with the Chechen diaspora and, and talk about their kind of relationship, uh, maybe maybe a little bit more with this kind of larger struggle, because of course, you know, the years are getting on They're They're not, uh, in many cases, they're not allowed or it's very inadvisable for them to return. And now with yeah. the Ukraine war, I mean, it's literally physically impossible for if they're living in the West. It's 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 very difficult. So. Yeah. And, and that is that is another part of it. You know, a lot of again, this idea about exit, right? What's going on in the diaspora? This this fear, this existential fear. You know, the kids aren't speaking Chechen. They're speaking Polish or they're smoking you know, the, 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 the children just aren't behaving in a, in a way that, that they want, you know, we can't even buy Chechen food or Chechen clothes here and they want to go home, but that's right. Their very presence in not going home makes them a target of suspicion for the Kadyrovs. As much as the Kadyrovs forces, right? They're like, come back home because the existence of a refugee or a diaspora community is a very visible indicator that things are not well at home. So, so there is that tension to come home, but Yes, talking about what has happened since last year, the invasion of Ukraine, you know, once again, I kind of watched this happen in slow motion. But among the Chechen diaspora, when the Russians are starting to invade Ukraine, what you see is this sort of collective angst, right? The buildings look like the buildings in Grozny. The street signs look like the street signs in Grozny. The, you know, it's a, the, this sort of like, you know, uh, 1960s Soviet architecture, mm-hmm. right? Uh, concrete on concrete. And so, and so you see this collective angst and trauma. This is horrific, right? It's bringing back the horrors of the war. But then that starts, that narrative starts to change, right? And, and again, sometimes you, you watch these things just from like, you know, a telegram channel and, and you just sort of like click on something and then go down and, and read, read the chat or, or, you know, or speak to people as well. And then just sort of like understand what's happening. But then that angst turns to anger. Where were our javelins, right? Where was our Western support? Where were the sanctions on Putin or Yeltsin, right? Where was that? And then that anger turned to sort of action, right? And here is where you start to get very explicit calls. You know, I think it's time to renew the operation to overthrow the occupation of Chechnya, right? So among the diaspora, and there's all sorts of disparate competing political factions within the diaspora. 
But that's kind of where we're at. And I think, again, looking back and reflecting on my own sort of research, you know, how this story began, thinking about sort of, right, like the different support for those political objectives and what it all really means. In some ways, we're, you know, a crooked line from a distance looks straight. For the Chechen struggle, we're sort of coming back around again. And in some ways, it's new. Right. Because social media, I mean, the Chechens would say to me as well, like, oh, my goodness, like if only we had cell phones, right, like grainy VHS videos, it's, you know, like things would be different. So the technology is new. The interconnectedness is new. The political landscape is new. There's uncertainty. There's hope. Like what happens if Kadyrov goes? He's in ill health. What happens when Putin leaves? Is that an opportunity? And in doing so, even some of the old ideas, you, we talked about religion. You know, at one point in the 90s, the sort of, just for, for sort of a heuristic, the Islamists and the nationalists were sort of like two competing, you know, ideologies. And I remember you, you could, you could go with some of the Dudayev folks in, in Baku and you could, you know, drink vodka and stuff like that. And then the other side of that, that was, would, would be prohibitive. But, you know, there has been this fusion over time. And so now, you know, you absolutely could get someone who wants Chechen independence with religious forms of regime type, like Sharia or whatever you'd like to call it. And that seems new within a contemporary context, but it's really not. It's this idea going back to like Gazavai, going back to Imam Shamil, the Dagestani leader that, that fought against, you know, Tolstoy and Lermontov and Pushkin, going back to Sheikh Mansour, right? And, and so there's kind of this return. And, and so, yeah, for me, within sort of like how I've looked at this problem and, and sort of my experiences, it does feel like we're sort of right. It's kind of new, but it, but it's not. And well, maybe that's, that, that's a trend you see across the region. I mean, Ukraine talks about the thousands years long history that they're defending. Russia itself, obviously, the Putin regime uh, relies on the 1945 victory. Kind of history itself has become malleable, has become right. it, it, a part of the battlefield itself yes. that, that, that you kind of see a return to these older forms or these kind of calling back to older forms because that gives a, a source of hope maybe when things um, are not going the way that maybe the resistance thought, thought it would. You, you mentioned the kind of new struggle, and and I, I just want to talk a little bit about this, the sons of Ichkeria and this kind of very, very new, mm-hmm. well, maybe not so new, but new turn. We're fighting in Ukraine and we're going to meet. This is our chance to, mm-hmm. to pivot. Where is that coming from and what, what does it look like? Yeah. So Ichkeria, of course, is, I mean, it's, it's a region in Chechnya, but it's, it, is, it is the name of independent Chechnya, right? And the first word of Chechen wars, they call it Chechen Republic of Ichkeria. And, and so what Nicholas is referring to is part of these, these groups that are sort of fighting in Ukraine, pro-Kiev groups, there's this other faction called the Sons of Ichkeria, and there's some political support for them. And, and again, they are very explicitly wanting, now we don't know how big they are, or what capability they have, but they are wanting to bring the struggle back home. And, and again, I cannot help but reflect on, on what that would look like and, and what types of obstacles. You know, for me, even assuming Kadyrov, Kadir, well, not if, but when Kadyrov passes, again, there will be a struggle among some of his sort of inner circle. You know, they'll have to agree to some sort of power sharing. But, but would the people rise up? And here's where, you know, when it comes to that dimension, 
I still think right now, I, I, I don't see this for, uh, for a majority of the Chechen people that they would be willing to sort of support that. That, that war is still so fresh. They would, you know, they'll tell you, like, we lost our best. I mean, a best of a generation. Um, and so I don't know that the sort of the will of the general population is there for another war. Among the people that do have that will, well, a lot of them are fighting in Ukraine right now. And I would be surprised if, you know, again, like uh, there's one general, Rustam Ajiev, Abdul uh, Kalim al-Shashani. He, he was with Ajnad al-Kabkaz in Syria, young, charismatic fighter, fought in the Second Russo-Chechen War is now, you know, uh, part one of these political factions. But there's all these videos of him fighting and he's, you know, I, I mentioned this to someone, I was like, wow, like he just, he, he exhibited like very poor fire discipline. You know, they like over, you know, they just shot more sort of rounds than they needed to. And they would, I used to watch a lot, a lot of videos. Uh, my, my wife, Kim is here. She would complain about late nights. Like, what is that shooting? It's the Chechen video, you know? they never would exhibit that type of behavior. And so for me, it's like, so they're clearly not worried about that, right? They're not worried about ammunition shortages. And so I would be surprised if those factions fighting in Ukraine were not stockpiling in some way, caches, thinking about taking the fight back home. So that becomes the next question, right? As you play it out, like Kadyrov goes, there's some sort of, right, contestation or there's some, there's, there's a little, there's a crack, right? There's a crack in the regime, you know? How many people, right? How many people do you need to, to sort of launch a rebellion? Because at some point, even if the population is reluctant because of the horrors that they've experienced, even if they're reluctant, at some point you you kind of right the game changes, and you either you got to pick sides. Again, I, I think on the face of it, I, I I don't expect that we are going to see a, a new Chechen war anytime soon. But what I would say again is that the calls for that are louder than they have been in a very long time. The confidence that they can get it done is, is more robust than it's been in a very long time. Well, as uh, as the last two years have shown, if you make a prediction in our region, you know, eventually you'll be proven wrong. But, so I won't ask any more predictions, yeah. but, I, but I will say thank you so much. It's been a wonderful, wonderful time speaking to you. I think that, you know, this is this is so important, uh, especially mm -hmm. in the context of, of kind of the more fraught geopolitical situation to to think back to uh, a time when, <laughs> you know, that was the conflict that was on everyone's mind and, and, and you know, to keep it to keep bringing it back because you know the lessons are, are absolutely pertinent right now yeah but. and 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 sort of uh you know to end with a greeting <laughs> uh uh right the chechens may you be free uh, you greet someone so thank you very much and thank you to the to the folks in the audience thank you to the center um it's uh, i really enjoyed the the talk today thank you so much dr dennis slavic connection is part of the texas podcast network the conversations changing the world Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. Oh, I was, I was, I was going to off camera try to shoot Judge's jokes. Okay, so. Is there a train? Oh,
<laughs> so there's two Chechen jokes. Um,